Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I am joined by Amanda Loudon. Hello, Amanda. It's been a while. Hi, Sarah. It has been a while. How are you? Good, good. It has been too long, actually. So thanks thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So you are fresh off a half marathon. I am. I am. Uh, It was fun. It was somewhere four hours away from here near the Utah border. Okay. That would be west of you. Uh-huh. Yeah. That would be west of me. And uh, we, it was, I had a, a good friend from Spokane flew in to join me and we drove the four hours on Saturday and ran the race on Sunday. It was a uh, trail race mm-hmm. and it was really spectacularly beautiful. I mean, it, it uh, really, really was. Yeah. Mm. So describe the scenery. I mean, big rock formations, trees. You know, I would describe it like Utah for anyone who's been to. Mm-hmm. We That's why I asked about rock formations. Yeah. 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 Not like I, we weren't terribly far from Moab. Oh. So for anyone who's been to Moab, you know, mm-hmm. with kind of some of that slick rock and, mm-hmm. um, you know, even a few hoodoos thrown in mm-hmm. there, you know, like, a, you know, in red rock, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. rice. It was just Ooh. stunning. Yeah. Yeah. I find the landscape of Utah so amazingly mind blowing. The, I got to the first press trip I ever got to go on was to a spa and resort in Southern Utah. And I just was like, wait, what, what's this landscape looking like? You know? I know. Just, just towering rock formations. And, oh, I love how different it looks. You know, you yeah. know, you're not what, you know, for me, I was coming from San Francisco. I knew I wasn't in San Francisco at the time. Right. Right. And I mean, in addition to which, I mean, I just think, you know, the, the sheer, number of amazing parks and variety mm-hmm. from one to the next, you know, it's really mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the race was really, really fun. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. How technical was the trail? It was pretty technical, um, especially coming down, you know, we were both talking about the fact that you kind of, the first half wasn't too terrible, but then you kind of hit a very like a uh, low point, meaning we descended down to a low point around mm-hmm. mile seven and then we had a three mile climb up, which was slow just because you were climbing the whole time. Mm-hmm. But then you reached mile 10, you're like, great, I've got three miles, you know, down from here. But that ended up being the most technical and like mm. absolutely the slowest. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, like kind of laugh because my legs, I mean, my legs had more to give, but I was just being so cautious with my footing, sure. down, you know, that it really yeah. kind of slowed me down. So, um, yeah, you just want yeah. to open up and it's like, nope. Nope, have yeah. to keep keep something in reserve so I don't go ass over tea kettle. So totally, uh. totally. You know, and at that point, like, you know, you are starting to feel a little bit tired, and so you want to make sure you're picking up your feet high enough so mm-hmm. that you're not tripping. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was it was a great race. You know, getting ready for it was a real push because Colorado has had the suckiest of all winters, I must say. <laughs> and, and you know, I really just you know anyone from Colorado who ever again tries to insist. Their winters are more mild than than the Mid Atlantic. Well, I, I would like to. <laughs> you beg to differ, sir. <laughs> about that, you know, just getting in the miles this winter, it was it was so challenging. I mean, mm-hmm. thank God I did get time in Maryland where I was away from the crappy weather and you know could, could get in some long runs there. But I definitely. It was like a, a cram session, honestly, to get in the mileage before this race. So, yeah. Amanda, the snowbird to Maryland. <laughs> you got it. I got the- 
<laughs> I, and let me just say, never again. I mean, sorry, Colorado, never again. Not doing one of your winters ever again. <laughs> so. Well, I think it's a it's a western half of the U.S. thing because we just. I mean, we are still having hail here in Portland and just one overcast day after another and the raindrops seem super big and lots of them. And it's just like, yeah. no, 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 no. And yeah. and we yes, we have a lot of things flowering right now, but I was like, wait, I love this is I adore spring. I just it Same. Portland Springs typically is what makes my heart sing. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm just like, I can't even really enjoy it because I can't get out there and kind of walk amongst it. And like the daffodils all look beaten down and the ones that are standing up have like mud splattered all over them. And, yeah. and I realize that's nature. Nature's not perfect. It's not a Claude Monet painting. But gosh, I just w- want to stroll in a little sunshine and look at some flowering trees. Is that too much I, to ask? Oh no, I'm with you because Colorado is not having any spring. I mean, it's just winter, <laughs> you know, and then we're going to go straight to 100 degrees. There's no, oh, again, I was in Maryland in March and uh, watching like just the glorious unfolding of spring there. It just, mm-hmm. it was so lovely. And I miss it so much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We are finally now getting some little green niblets of starting leaves. And uh, my best friend, she called it um, the Friday night of leaves because that anticipation that you feel on Friday evening for the weekend to come. And it's just like, oh, I just want it to be right now. I don't even want the the good yeah. stuff to come. I just want that anticipation. And so it's that same yeah. feeling of like, oh, the leaves, they're about to be here. They're about to be here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. But a, a spring tradition here in Portland, I'm very excited about has nothing to do with leaves or daffodils or any of that it is my son's pre-professional dance company jefferson dancers they have their annual spring performances starting tomorrow as we record this on thursday we're recording wednesday it starts off on thursday there are four shows so they're back to pre-pandemic show levels in terms of how many performances they do and i'm going to be there for all four of them probably crying my eyes out because (laughs) I can't believe his high school career is over. And I just adore watching him dance. He's in all nine pieces, including the one that he choreographed that won the top honors at the National High School Dance Festival for Outstanding Student Choreography. Wow. Um, That's an amazing accomplishment. It, thank you. Thank you. It really, really wasn't. Oh my gosh. Um, so this is a little bit of a twisted story, but that festival was out in Pittsburgh and I was a chaperone. And so sitting there in the audience, they had um, all, all 11 pieces had been performed. We were waiting for the results. And, you know, when they announced that John won, I just whooped and hollered so loudly. I have rarely felt so much pure joy in my entire life. And so then one of my good friends, Kate, is a teacher at an um, interesting high school down in San Francisco, and that high school had dancers at the festival. Well, it turns out I was seated next to one of these kids that Kate told me last night on the phone. She said she um, substituted for a class that had a lot of dancers in it at her high school, and so she knows you know, my son, John, and so she was like, hey, did you guys see the outstanding student choreography piece? What'd you think of it? Da-da-da. And so they didn't have much to say about the dance, but the one kid goes, oh, 
I was seated right next to his mom. She blew out my eardrums when they announced his name. (laughs) As well, you should. (laughs) Yes, yes. My response to her was, well, tell him he's too young to be manspreading when he sits. This kid was totally sitting like a grown man on a bus or a train. And I'm like, just sitting there thinking, dude. Put your legs together. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so hopefully, well, Jack does manspread. So I will be on at some of the shows, be seated next to a manspreader. Okay. But uh, yeah, I am very, very excited for the performances. So anyway, so if any local Portland people, they can still catch it Friday night, Saturday matinee, Saturday night. So yeah, go to jeffersondancers.com. Anyway, enough of my promo of my son, who I'm incredibly proud of. Well, our guest today is someone that you recommended, Amanda. Her name's also Amanda. Her full name's Amanda Parrish Morgan. This Amanda is a writer and writing instructor, a marathon runner, and a mom of two. She's also the author of a book that won a lot of praise last year. It's called Stroller, which is a collection of essays that take a hard look at the accoutrements and hurdles of the early parenthood years. And this conversation just, okay, I'm admitting, I'm recording this intro after we did it because this conversation is about so much more than running with strollers. It just, I love a good thought piece about running. And that's exactly what the two Amandas deliver. It's about aging, slowing down, kind of the impermanence of running, the societal significance of a running stroller. It is, I dare you to not think about this episode after it's over. So welcome to the show, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. So I have to mention that you live in my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, but then spent my last two years of high school in Westport. Oh, I felt like I had somehow through Jim Gerwick known when you were first starting oh. another mother runner. I think he was maybe at an event or anyway. Oh my so gosh. I knew there must be some Connecticut connection and that makes so much sense. Oh my gosh, Jim Gerwick, a blast from the past. (laughs) He is, I mean, it's accurate to say he's a local race organizer and kind of man about town for running in the, in Fairfield County. And oh my gosh, so supportive of another mother runner in the early days. What a fabulous guy. So he is such a like grassroots running community advocate in every way, you know, for Mm -hmm. fast Mm -hmm. runners, super competitive runners who are looking for like, he put on this uh, track meet during the height of the pandemic when races weren't really happening and mm-hmm. invited all these people who are trying to, you know, run certain times. He's, he's great. Oh, awesome. Well, if you cross paths in person with Jim, please give him my best. I will. Nice. Nice. Well, that's fun. So Amanda, give us some idea of your running background. When did you get started and um, what does your running look like these days? Sure. Okay. So I started running in ninth grade, which was 1996. I have to say, I just was listening to an interview on the radio and someone said, a caller said, when I was in fourth grade in 2004, and my first thought was like, how are you old enough to use a telephone? Yes, it was not 2004. It was 1996. Um, I had tried out for the volleyball team and got cut even from the freshman team, which I think was like, they didn't usually make cuts, but I was so (laughs) terrible that they did. And I just, I came home and cried my eyes out. And then later that night, my mom in a very kind way said, you don't have to do a sport, but I want you to find something after school. You can do the school play. You can get a job. You can do a different sport that doesn't have cuts, but you know, I don't want you to just come home off the school bus and sit in the house. So 
my best friend's older brother was the captain of the boys cross country team. I had could not run a mile without walking, but he was nice and she was going to do cross country. So I was like, okay, I, there are no cuts. People seem nice. And I was quite literally the worst girl on my high school team. I remember we had a timed mile and I finished last and almost, you know, like fainted from <laughs> running it. <laughs> I, I loved it. And the coach is sort of another of those local legend. He's now a man in his seventies who is still coaching, but it was just a really, really supportive kind of quirky group of kids, like a lot of high school programs are, I think. And our, our team was actually pretty good. And I'm really stubborn in it to a fault sometimes. But in this case, it served me well because I, I did work really hard pretty quickly. And I, I'm especially stubborn if I think people think I can't do something. And, you know, I was, again, really quite bad. So I knew no one was thinking that I would ever, you know, be anything more than kind of like trailing off the back of the pack. So I secretly swore I would make varsity the next year. And I did actually, and our team ended up, you know, being pretty good. So I got to have a lot of really fun and exciting race experiences with my high school team. Um, And then I went on to run at a division three college and have been running pretty consistently racing as well ever since. Hmm. That's so great. Well, Amanda, I do want to chime in that I I feel your pain about being cut from a no cut sport. I, when I switched to that high school in Westport, where it seemed like people were born with lacrosse sticks in their hands, yeah. I, uh, uh, my best friend and I just quietly got not put on the varsity team, not got put on the JV team. And it was just, there was an understanding that we were supposed to kind of just quietly back out of yes. the room and be done with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been there. <laughs> and Amanda, are you currently training for anything? Yeah. So, in just uh, two and a half weeks, my husband and I are both going to run the Providence Half Marathon. Mm. We live in Connecticut, so that's that's close by. And hoping the weather's decent. I've my big challenge to myself this spring has to go back to the track because I feel like I, I don't know if this is common with people who ran on teams where they did a lot of track work, but I can find it sort of intimidating. I'm, I'm the kind of runner who, whether I'm training for something or not, I'll, I'll pretty much run daily just for my mental health, but. Mm-hmm. getting to the track often feels a little bit like ripping off a bandaid. So mm-hmm. one of my friends in the neighborhood and I have been meeting once a week at 6am at the high school track and who knows how that will, you know, play out in the race itself, but it's actually been such a fun thing to do because, you know, in that way that doing things that feel scary, but then you realize it's actually not that bad. And it, it makes me feel sort of like I time traveled and I'm younger <laughs> because you know, that I associate the track so much with, I coached high school for a long time. It reminds me of coaching. It reminds me of being in high school and college. So my big challenge to myself this spring was to try to work on a little bit of leg speed. I just turned 40. So I would love to try to PR in the half marathon as a master's. We'll see, you know. Mm, mm. Well, you lead right into the next question. I want you to talk about how the phrase faster as a master resonates with you. <laughs> I have really conflicted feelings about that phrase. Um, and mm. I keep trying to write about it directly. And I've, I've written a little bit in my book stroller and in a few other pieces about that. I feel like with a lot of things on social media, which I, I guess that phrase makes me think of it as a hashtag. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I sort of don't like the idea that we always, whether it's in running or something else, have to be like achieving more, measuring more, 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 you know, it, Mm-hmm. It feels like, on the one hand, wonderful that women are no longer feeling like, you know, after you have children or after you reach a certain age or after you're out of school, your competitive athletic career should come to an end or having goals related to fitness should come to an end. But I also feel like it actually gets at something that's 
a lot darker and thornier than the mm. phrase is so cheerful. You know, like, I mean, really, I'm scared of not PRing, not because I think there's any real difference between, you know, my PR and the half is 127. If I could run 126.59.9, I'll feel so thrilled. <laughs> but not because I think there's any, like, significant difference in those times. It's more just... I'll convince myself I'm not aging yet. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, it, it reminds me of like a, a, my hair went gray really early and I decided to stop coloring it during the pandemic. And it sort of makes me think of this, a similar reckoning with, okay, I really am aging. And at some point, if it hasn't already happened, I'm, you know, I've been running seriously for a long time. So I'm not probably going to be one of those people who, wow, PR is at age 55, you know? So mm-hmm. it's going to be kind of a stark reckoning when, a year or two, three years, whatever goes by. And I'm not knocking on the door of my old times anymore, that it's not just going to be a sort of athletic or competitive thing to grapple with, but sort of like a more, uh, more serious for me, at least thinking about mortality and aging. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I do have to say that, that I definitely had a lot of those same sort of thoughts, not nearly as eloquently put as you just did, but I got to say, having a really bad sidelining injury, I had uh, two bulging mm-hmm. discs that I couldn't run for 11 months. I used to grapple with that whole, you know, oh, I'm not as fast as I used to be and those types of thoughts. And now I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I can actually run again. And I'm so grateful that there's no comparison because I'm just glad I'm out there. Yeah. So I'm not wishing that upon you. But I even before the injury, I felt like the thoughts that had kind of plagued me during my forties, mm-hmm. they, they were, they were definitely quickly diminishing in my early fifties. Yeah. 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 And, I wonder if it's almost like, because I'm sort of on the cusp where I've just crossed over, I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know for sure, but I haven't PR'd in a year and a half. So, which mm-hmm. is fine, you know, that's normal, but it does feel like I'm right in the thick of has mm-hmm. that or hasn't that mm-hmm. window close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the window eventually does close yeah. and, and it bothers you less and less at the windows, or at yeah. least I should say, speak for myself, that window used to really bother me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, Oh, huh, look, there's a window over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's freedom too. I think it's, yeah. it's mm-hmm. you know, it's freedom from pressure. And I find more joy in my running at this age than I did when I cared mm-hmm. more about my time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. you'll get there. Mm-hmm. You'll be, yeah, you're going to be just fine. And, 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 you have a long way to go still. So yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of racing and since Boston was just this week, tell us about your remarkable 2021 Boston marathon. Oh, thanks. I ran Boston in 2008 and 2009, you know, like, which now feels like another era of my life, but I I love the race. I don't think marathons are my favorite type of races to run. Um, (laughs) despite the, you know, joy of Boston. So I had sort of thought, okay, you know, I did that wonderful experience and that's the end of that. But then after COVID, I sort of, or after the, you know, period when races races were canceled, I sort of had this thought of like, what a cool way to celebrate the fact that races are happening again. And, you know, to not take for granted the opportunity to come together with people from all over the country and, and run hard. And I did have a qualifying time from a race I ran in 2019. And then they had extended, you know, the qualifying window because of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. a friend, another master's runner and I, a friend in the neighborhood and I trained together and I really just sort of, for the very first time in all of the marathons I've run, I felt like I hit the balance right between challenging myself enough, but not overtraining. I tend to sort of, I do better when I don't have a lot of structure to my training. And I think I finally learned that. And 
in the past I had understood that for shorter races, you know, like five K's and, and half marathons, but the marathon had always felt so daunting in its distance that I would adhere pretty stubbornly to a plan or have a coach or something. And I did work with a coach for that training plan, but I told her, Mary Johnson is her name. I told her from the outset, like, okay, I want you to just tell me what one speed workout to do a week and what one long run to do a week. And then I'm just going to decide what I can fit into my schedule. You know, I had a lot of work stuff going on and, and that just worked really well for me because it not only, I felt like I didn't have some of the injury flare ups that I've had um, in other marathon training plans, but it just was so much more fun and coming on the tail end too of races being, you know, unavailable for so long. It was really, really celebratory. Mm -hmm training, but the race especially as well. Mm, mm. And we're not going to dwell on PRs, but it was a PR for you, right? It was. That's actually the last, the most recent PR I've run. Um, I ran 310 and mm. I go back and forth on, you know, the round number thing that sometimes drives runners crazy. Like <laughs> I try to do another run and run a 3-0 something. But for right now, I don't have a lot of desire to do those long runs. So that may just be a call it a day. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh. Well, uh, congratulations on that time. That's fantastic. Yeah. We'll continue our conversation with the guest after this break. Stay with us. So Amanda, you referenced that you used to coach cross country. And so what did that do for your soul? Oh my gosh. I loved coaching. I coached high school starting about two years after I'd been out of college. I was in a graduate Mm. program for English literature. And I just, you know, my entire, the past eight years of my life had been every Saturday morning going to a cross country course or a track meet. And I I really felt a homesickness for that Mm. part of my life. And so I sort of blindly emailed a bunch of high school coaches. I went to grad school in Washington, DC. So I emailed a bunch of schools and just said, hi, I'm this person who is going to grad school and would love to help out in the afternoons if you need someone. And this really wonderful mentor of mine who became a mentor, Jim Aaron Haft, who coaches at still at the National Cathedral School in St. Albans. The mm-hmm. St. Albans is the boys' school and National Cathedral is the girls' school. Mm-hmm. Um, but he runs both programs. It invited me to come coach with him. And he just was, he's an amazing coach and such a thoughtful, thoughtful person. And the Students were wonderful. It was it was a really great experience. And then when I finished grad school, I started teaching high school English and moved back to Connecticut. So I, I left that particular coaching position, but started coaching at two different public schools where I, I worked up here. Mm-hmm. And you, one of the things I think about that coaching was such a gift to me is it really helped me to be kinder to myself because I sort mm. of thought about how the tendencies that at certain points in my life I've struggled with to think like, oh, you shouldn't eat that or, oh, you should feel like a terrible person because you skipped your run today or those kind of things. When I was coaching, it was just so easy to see. I would never talk to one of my athletes like that or think Mm -hmm. like that about them. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of had this intuitive sense that if I were able to treat myself as reasonably and kindly as I would expect myself to treat them, that that would, they would pick up on that too. And, you know, I had had some experience with either friends or acquaintances who had some pretty toxic coaching situations. And I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't perpetuating that. Like Mm -hmm. I remember a friend telling me about a a coach who proudly bragged that she didn't eat the birthday cake at her child's first birthday. And Mm -hmm. I like, not only did that happen, but she told the whole girls cross country team that, um, and just sort of promising myself, like we all have our stuff and you know, at times worse than others or whatever, but everything I can do in my control to not 
to not pass this on, even in an unspoken way. I, I really want to to make sure my relationship with running and with food is healthy. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We need more people who are like that interacting with our young people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you wrote a wonderfully contemplative piece for Zibby magazine about the impermanence of running. So Amanda, can you elaborate on that a bit for us, please? As I kind of mentioned before, I moved back to the same, not the exact same town, but the same area of Connecticut where I grew up. And so I often find myself sort of sometimes literally retracing old routes that I, Mm -hmm. that I've run in different phases of my life. And especially when I was coaching, I coached at my own alma mater for for a while Um, with (laughs) the boys coach was my high school coach and I was the girl's head coach, which was was such a trip (laughs) and really wonderful actually um, for lots of, lots of reasons. I would have this experience where I'd be, you know, turning the corner on a fall day and the leaves looked just like they had in 1998 (laughs) or, you know, the smell of the air was that certain Connecticut fall smell or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And even just visiting the courses where we raced. And it almost, I started to think of it sort of like laying down tracks of memories where, you know, running has had these different roles in my life, sometimes more serious, sometimes more of a mental health type of role that it plays in my life. And so I just started thinking about how fleeting the the time of, you know, intense interval training and college level mileage and all that kind of stuff had been, but how sort of the contrast between how fleeting that was, then at the same time, watching the mix of things that had stayed the same over the now almost 30 years since I started running and the way also the towns and communities I was running through had changed. And it just felt like a really, I I mean, I, I, I'm kind of prone to being nostalgic. So I, (laughs) I felt a lot of, uh, I guess, longing and joy and sadness all at the same time about how clear it became that time was passing, you know, for Mm -hmm. me personally, for my parents, especially, you know, for my children now who my kids are six and eight. So watching them grow up and and think about all the different times in my life and places in my life, I'd been in certain physical spots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. And it kind of leads into my next question. As, as a writer myself, I know how much running is useful to me <laughs> and, and how they kind of inform one another. Do you, do you find any similarities between writing and running? And, and do you mull over what you're writing while you're running? Definitely. I actually noticed relatively recently, and I wish I had figured this out sooner, that when I'm really in the thick of trying to work through a first draft of something, which for me is by far the hardest part of writing, um, if I, I can't even listen, I love to listen to audiobooks usually when I'm running, but in that, when I'm in the midst of a first draft of something tricky, I have to have complete silence on my runs and then I can work th- through things. And then when I'm in a different, you know, a, maybe in the phase of a project where I'm proofreading or something, I can go back to my audiobooks. but sort of as someone who is kind of running around, just, you know, my kids are still pretty young and I'm the primary caretaker during the day for them. So my days can be kind of hectic logistically and often running is the only time where it's truly silent for me. And I do run alone a lot just because of my schedule. So it's valuable just for that alone. And then the other thing I've thought a lot about, I was talking to Christine, you just has a book coming out up to yeah. speed. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we're having well, Amanda, Amanda and I are uh, co-hosting that episode when oh, she's on. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know, Amanda and I both met Christine at a, a writing and running retreat a few years ago. But one of the things I had asked her when we spoke about her book is, 
a similar question about if she noticed similarities in her process. And she was saying that, let's see if I get this right. Um, running had allowed her to be more kind to herself with her writing, like in the way that she realized, you know, it's easy to see. She was saying as a runner, you sometimes have an off day. You just don't feel great. And maybe you're disappointed, but you move on and you run again the next day. Um, and that that was an important lesson for her to carry over with to writing. Mm-hmm. Where, and I feel like for me, it was almost, almost the opposite in some ways where when I was teaching high school, I wasn't writing very much, but I would still always make sure that I ran every day. And I started to think like, you know, I'm not planning to be a professional runner. Clearly, <laughs> So why am I carving out non-negotiable time for myself to run? Not that I shouldn't do it, but why have I decided to do that every day and never for writing, which I actively, you know, was wanting to start doing more of and, and really missed. So I think for me, in some ways, the dynamic was a bit flipped that I had given running this space that r- was meaningful and important to me, but it, it helped me to think about how I could do that with writing as well. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, going back to that, you said you enjoy listening to audiobooks. Did you hear that piece on NPR on Marathon Monday about where they talked to runners who enjoy listening to audiobooks? No. Oh, yeah. And so I just thought it was this incredibly niche piece to do on all things considered or you know morning edition whichever it was and i just they had all these theories about and all these guests who were talking about how you know it um allows their brain to be so much more free when they're running and just exactly what type of books are best to listen to and all this stuff i'm like wow like that is funny. I agree with you. That's really in the weeds of running yeah. Yeah. exactly i thought wow. so too so do you have any thoughts about why it is that, you know, audiobooks literally speak to you while you run or, you know? Well, I think part of it is just uh, two things that I wish were not the case. One is just that I don't have time to read as much as I wish I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For pleasure, you know, as, as well as for work. And the other thing is, I hate to say this and admit this because I teach college students and it's one of the things I try to tell them is really important. My attention span for sustained reading is mm-hmm. not what it used to be. And I don't know if that is a, it's probably both a symptom of, you know, the internet age and whatever mm-hmm. that means mm-hmm. and just being busy and not getting enough sleep and trying to do too many things at once. Mm-hmm. So it, from a practical standpoint, it often feels like a really wonderful way to just get to read a book that I otherwise wouldn't have time for, especially with mm-hmm. memoir and nonfiction. I feel like I can engage a little bit more easily hearing it rather with fiction. Sometimes I feel like I need to read it on the page or I have a hard time focusing on getting to know the characters in the way that I would want to. I have to say that one of the guests on that NPR piece made the exact same comment. (laughs) And they were like, oh, and the best, you know, memoirs are ones that are then read by the authors. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I also, like I was saying, I I do run alone quite often. And after having run with teams, whether teams I was coaching or teams I was on, I hadn't really been used to running alone at all. And I I missed the conversation. So um, then as a final sort of maybe second part of that, if I listen to music, it makes me run a bit too fast, I think, especially on my easy days. Mm -hmm. So it was a nice, Mm -hmm. I thought a great way to like, and also I can hear a little bit better over an audio book and I don't, I don't personally feel as concerned about the, you know, distraction, the audio distraction I would have with a book the way I would if I were like blasting Taylor Swift while I was running down the road. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Excellent. Well, now now you need to yeah, find that NPR piece and see. Yes. Um, so, what prompted you to take a look at the early parenthood years through the quote unquote lens of the stroller? I was thinking about this as I was walking home from campus today. You know, thinking about our talk we were going to have, and I was remembering that one of the first ideas came from running actually with the stroller and how, you know, in a literal sense, running with the stroller was slower than if I were to go on that exact same day on a Mm -hmm. run of the exact same length alone. Mm -hmm. But the flip side was in those early parenthood years when I would race, I would always totally shock myself. I wouldn't be really doing very much mileage and not any structured workouts. And, you know, I'd be like struggling through these stroller runs during the week and then we'd do some 5k and realize, oh, that actually, you know, that resistance training or the endorphins that I have from finally not having the stroller really helped me out. And so then I started thinking how just the stroller felt like such a good metaphor for parenthood itself that mm. often it can be, you know, hard, exhausting, confusing. I'm not that strollers are so much confusing, but like <laughs> difficult in ways that are hard to anticipate and in this logistically challenging, you know, I remember running with the stroller and there were trails I couldn't go on, or <laughs> sometimes a turn would get wonky and the wheel would go crazy or whatever. So I felt like that's exactly how being invested in, you know, raising children feels too with other aspects of life. And I started to think of other ways from that, that strollers felt like an important metaphor to me for other aspects of parenting young children as well. Mm-hmm. 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 Definitely. So you write about a stroller becoming an omnidirectional magnet, pulling disparate material into friendly proximity. Can you break that down for us a bit? Sure. I think the idea is just that any object I think has the power to do this, but with a stroller in particular, you can use it to think about things like consumer culture or class signifiers, you know, and the suburb where I live is sort of like a stereotypical affluent New England suburb. And there are certain brands of strollers that are all lined up at the preschool and other brands you would never see. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're almost like the way some people might feel about cars, you know, mm-hmm. it's this really visible brand that seems to connote this whole series of other things. And then one chapter I interviewed Abby Bales, who's a physical therapist, and she made this comment that a lot of readers have responded to that she felt like we have a habit in this, in our culture of seeing a problem and then creating a product to address it instead of Mm -hmm. actually looking at the roots of the problem. And she was talking about this pressure new moms often feel to be simultaneously caretaking plus exercising, which may even be tied up with, you know, weight loss goals. Or for me, it really was more with competitive identity and wanting to get that part of my life back. But I know for a lot of women, they, they do feel a lot of pressure to you know, quickly start working out at an intense level after having children. And she kept saying, no, no, no. The problem isn't we need a stroller that you can run with. The problem is we need systems that let women have an hour to themselves to go for a run. Or (laughs) if if they don't want to, because they want to be with their babies all day or whatever, then that should be okay also. So another one of those, I guess, if the stroller is a magnet, another thing I was trying to kind of pull in is this idea of what we expect of women and how so often the expectations of moms are at at odds with each other, you know, the expectation to be a hundred percent devoted to caretaking at the same time that you're also supposed to be returning to fitness, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah. So, so when you think about strollers through the decades or even centuries, what through line do you see? Well, one thing that surprised me is that from a very early 
very early on, like as early as the first patent for the pram, you know, those mm-hmm. Victorian sort of bulky mm-hmm. um, English. I always think of them being English, but of course other people use them too. Um, <laughs> there was all this judgment about parents who were using them, who weren't using them, why you should use them, like what could be wrong with using them, how they could hurt a baby, how it would be the parent's fault if the pram malfunctioned. Um, and, you know, sort of that culture of so many parts of parenting are like this, but I guess I just had it in my head that this, that was a newer phenomenon than it really is. You know, that a piece of baby equipment you bought would be somehow a way that in some people's eyes you were failing or succeeding as a parent or signifying something about your parenting philosophy. Um, you know, even as early as the middle of the 19th century, this British author, uh, forgetting his first name, his last name is Sewell. He wrote this whole detailed critique of every type of stroller and why it would be wrong to use this one and that one. And it just, it really was like, wow, this, you know, the language was very antiquated, but this, someone could have written this today and posted it as some think piece that like clickbaity. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. So let's dive into the reality of stroller running. Tell us about your stroller running days. And um, I know that at one point you owned a double stroller, correct? Yes. Um, my kids are about exactly 24 months apart. And I remember feeling like once it, like when my son was born, both of them were born in December. So in those, you know, early few weeks when I wasn't able to run yet and it was freezing cold, like, you know, those were sort of, no one was going anywhere with the running stroller. But then as soon as my son was old enough, figuring out how to get both kids into the stroller. And I think we, I ran like a mile or something, but it just felt like this completely exhilarating sense of, okay, now, no matter how crazy the day gets, I have this power to do something that really, really matters to me. So in a way, sort of contradicting the notion that running strollers are all about suffering and losing weight. For me, it really was a sense of freedom. You know, we live in a really walkable neighborhood and I felt safe running with my kids in either the single or the double stroller. And I, I felt like on the days when I for whatever reason, knew I wasn't going to be able to run before my husband left for work or sneak in a nap time. We have a treadmill. We're lucky to have one as well. So I had a lot of training options and it felt like that was one more chance to to be outside, but also a way to share something that I really love with my kids. And especially in those really early years where sometimes, you know, I was most, I was doing a tiny bit of freelance writing, but mostly just, you know, full, full-time caretaking sometimes the days could feel long and having a stroller to go on an adventure in felt like, wow, great. We're, we're doing something. We're exploring. I'm, you know, it felt healthy for them to be outside in the fresh air. It really felt like a tool to sort of connect how I thought of myself before having children with the realities of, you know, a two-year-old who, who can't go on a five mile hike or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. I love that. So what age did you stop taking that double stroller out? Because uh, you sent one photo and the kids were pretty old in it. Yeah, we actually had it. So that must have been the summer of 2019. I was training pretty seriously for a sub three marathon attempt and running with it. Not very often anymore at that point. I mm-hmm. My kids never really were. You know, I know some people did 10 mile stroller runs. I Neither my kids or I had the patience to do that. So, you know, it would be the occasional... Monday morning, three mile shuffle or something like that. Or, um, we live in a neighborhood where both of, for the elementary school and the preschool, we walked to school or I ran to school usually. And it would sort of just be, if I had a tight deadline and I had to write throughout all of nap time and preschool time, then at least I could run to school and run home and I could get something in. Mm -hmm. But 
I sold this stroller for like $25 because it was disgusting by that point. Um, the, <laughs> right before COVID started, because I thought, okay, my daughter is in kindergarten now. So we did have a single running stroller also. I, I kind of tried to make fun of myself a bit in the book for having so many different strollers, but I'm like, I won't really need this anymore. If I use it, it'll only be, you know, when my only my son is home and my daughter is at school. And then of course, a few weeks later, everybody was home all the time. And I actually <laughs> wish I still had it. I know it's a little bit absurd looking to imagine a five-year-old sitting in a stroller, but when we were just looking for anything to do in every, you know, there mm-hmm. was, I would have happily pushed them probably not on a run at that point, they would have been pretty heavy, but on a long walk. And then I, I kept running with my son and his until he was probably almost four. And it was a little silly. His legs would be almost like hanging out to the ground. <laughs> and it definitely, you know, he had less and less patience for it. He wouldn't fall asleep in it anymore. And then finally, mm-hmm. one day I hit a patch of ice and no one was hurt or anything, but it just shredded the tube on the inside of the tire. And I was like, it's time mm. to retire this. This is fine. <laughs> well, you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but do you think that pushing a running stroller helped you with your speed at all? I do think it did. I know a lot of friends have had, you know, some back trouble and biomechanical difficulties, which completely makes sense. But I never really ran. I think the longest I ever ran with the stroller was five miles. And that I think if I'm remembering, I had run to a playground that was like two and a half miles away and let the kids play and run home. So I would usually try to think of it either as I would run pretty much as slow as possible and not try to be breathing very hard and use it as a true, you know, this is like a three mile to shake out the legs kind of day. Or else I would try to keep, I mean, it wasn't a fast pace, but what felt like a hard effort and do 45 or 40 minutes or something and call that a tempo run, you know, sort of like a marathon effort pace workout. And I feel like because I actually wasn't going at those speeds, but I was still breathing as hard as I would have been, it saved my legs a bit from some of the, you know, overtraining injuries that can crop up. But then also just when I was in a race, it I was sort of felt like I had on the one hand, a bolt of adrenaline from being in a race and then another bolt of adrenaline from not pushing a 50 or maybe even by the end, 100 pounds in front of me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So how about any technique tips, you know, any practical advice uh, on running form that you can share? Yeah. I had read a little bit about this in those years. And I remember reading that whenever possible, it is a good idea to use the lead or whatever term you'd use for it, the sort of like strap that you can push the Mm -hmm. stroller ahead Mm -hmm. to so that you're not just running with your arms, both locked straight out in front of you and switch which arm you're holding on with and which you're pushing with. We live in a really, really flat neighborhood. We're right by the Long Island Sound. So I didn't have to worry about hills. Although the few times I I ran on hills, I think that's a whole other beast of stroller running. (laughs) (laughs) So I was lucky to not not really have to worry about that very much. But I have, this is maybe a slight tangent, but I met a, the friend I've been running with at 6am at the track is a mom of three kids and her youngest is about one and a half. And sometimes after we drop our older kids off at elementary school will run together and there is a big hill we'll go up together and we both put one hand on the stroller and push it up and it sounds <laughs> kind of cheesy but it is every time we do it I'm like this is this is what mother running friendships are all about you know we're gonna <laughs> push the stroller up the hill together and it, it just feels so awesome like it's that painful minute of running up the hill always feels really empowering at the same time 
I love that. I love that. Oh my gosh. Did you ever get people like slowing down and yes. looking at you? Or really <laughs> people honking and saying like, move over closer. What? But there's nowhere else to oh. move. You know? <laughs> I always try to go on the outside in the, so of the two of us, you know, so the stroller isn't on the outside, but people don't like that we're too abreast. Like, all right, you know, this is a 25 mile per hour residential street. Let's, let's calm down. <laughs> That's so funny. Being, I've lived on the West Coast long enough away from my native Connecticut. When you first said that someone honked at you, I thought, oh, that's so sweet. Did they like wave and give you a thumbs up? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially other runners. Well, if you pass them or whatever, I'm sure many people have experienced that. I have to say secretly or not secretly, I guess I really enjoy enjoyed passing men while pushing the stroller because there was already the factor of like sometimes you could tell the man didn't really want you to pass him and then when he saw there was a stroller I would think like ha well now I really got you <laughs> love that <laughs> I know um you know I ran with strollers with each of my kids and I had very different experiences my oldest was always content my second, not so much. And so um, do you have any tips for people in terms of keeping your your little uh, passenger content on runs? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I think you just have to sort of pick your battles in general. It's such a parenting cliche, but one I think is really true. I am not at all a food battle picker. Like we have many, many, many snacks of all types, you know, like um, on stroller runs that I, in life too, but on stroller <laughs> runs, I use them sort of as entertainment. And then I also just had to realize that a stroller run, anything was bonus kind of, you know, if I only got a mile in before someone melted down, I had to start the run knowing that that would be okay if that happened. Um, which is why I was never one of those people who felt like I could just make that an everyday part of my routine, because I think I would have felt stressed out like that I wasn't having any real system to my training, if I were going to try to, to just rely a hundred percent on that. So the other thing I did a lot, this might not be feasible depending on location, but I would run to the YMCA. This was pre pandemic. So they had a child watch that was open there. I think it is now open again, but I would run to the YMCA, which was a couple miles, depending on how I went, have my son play in the child watch, which he liked and I felt comfortable with. And then I would maybe do like a speed workout on the treadmill and then jog home mm. with the treadmill. Mm. So he, I mean, sorry, with the stroller, but he would never be in for more than 20 minutes at a time, which sort of felt like, well, that's just kind of like a car ride. Or if we walked there, that's how long it would take. So um, mm -hmm. it broke it up for him. But that way on those days, I could still get a fair amount of mileage and some, high, some you know, more intensity in. Also clever because then you get that warm up yeah, exactly. built in the warm up and cool yeah. down. Yeah, I always mm -hmm. I felt like ooh, I was so efficient today. You know, <laughs> no matter what else happened that day, I had managed that. Absolutely, walk a little taller, yeah, exactly. a little cockier. Sometimes we get lunch afterwards. That felt really exciting. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, Amanda, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Awesome. Oh, Amanda, thank you for recommending her. I love nothing better than a think piece about running. I know. So I know. she was excellent oh. and um, kind of brought back some memories too for some of us older child parents now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I didn't realize that you had run so much with each of your kids in a stroller. Yeah. I mean, I had it kind of like Amanda, I had both a single and then when I had two kids, I, I had the double which was, you know, not double the fun. Um, 
Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, um, I rarely ran with a stroller. It just, gosh, it's, it makes it so challenging. So hats off to people who do it on a regular basis. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I'm going to once again encourage everyone to join us for one of our retreats this year because I was just out in Redmond, Oregon. And Amanda, not to rub it in, but it's a fantastic place. Like it just... Everywhere I turned, every Melissa and I are retreat coordinator. Everywhere we turned, there was a great coffee shop, the most tasty pizza place that we hope we're going to have a lunch at. It's in this converted church, and it is uh, word on the street from several sources. It's going to be included in or featured in, I'm going to get the order wrong, but um, drive-ins, diners, and dives or whatever that show is with yeah yeah, with guy fury Fury. yes so and gosh just really beautiful eight pickleball courts an amazing running trail and then smith rock which is this state park with just the speak going back to towering rock formations oh my goodness it just it's takes your breath away and you you just you're spinning your head around like you're some some crazed uh, extra from the exorcist i mean it's just there's something to look at everywhere and you just your head's swiveling all around it to take it all in it's fabulous so anyway that is going to be yeah it is it is it's going to be june 9th through 12th in redmond oregon we have about two maybe three slots left for that one and we're gonna have to close that out soon so do not delay any further or if that's time frame or that location doesn't work for you head to the east coast to hilton head island november 3rd through 6th which is also beautiful in its own way um, right there on the atlantic ocean you can find all the details and register by going to anothermotherrunner.com and clicking on events and you'll see them in the drop down menu there and we do have a firm payment plan for everything and anything on our site if you want to spread the payments out a bit our podcast today was produced in st paul minnesota by barry madura from fire on the bluff This is such a moment right now, I think, that we're having with with female athletes and books coming out, and it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, our guest, Amanda, was touching on things that I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what Lauren Fleshman talks about in her book. So there's just this, there's Venn diagrams of of, from running books just all around us. And it it is, it's the golden age of running books. It really kind of is. (laughs) And and female written running books, women written books. Mm-hmm. running book which mm-hmm. is awesome mm-hmm. yes maybe they need to re-release uh, run like a mother yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> right i'll get right on that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>